Hello, you all, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Cole, myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high yield orthopedic surgery material. And you are now tuned into our OITE review and actually the last of our sports lower extremity OITE review. So we hope you will have enjoyed listening to myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine talk about some sports stuff. I'm sure we did not hit everything, um, but we would love to know if you all are enjoying this, if you like it things that you do like things that you don't like please feel free to send us an email at nailedortho at gmail.com and let us know so without further ado let's go ahead and hop into the episode our episode today is sponsored by panacea financial a digital bank built for doctors by doctors from medical student to attending panacea offers free checking and loan options just for physicians, including their PR and personal loan that gives you up to 75000 at an interest rate less than half of a credit card. Panacea Financial can also refinance your medical school debt with no maximums or help with commercial needs such as practice or surgery center buy-ins. Visit PanaceaFinancial.com today to learn how you can join the physicians nationwide who expect more from their bank. Panacea Financial is a division of the Primus member FDIC. And please, if you go, mention it, nailed it, ortho, in the how did you hear about us section. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. So those are all things that we can look for on x-ray. I know it was a long list of things uh, just to reiterate on the lateral of the knee. You can look for trochlear dysplasia and you can look at the patellar height. On the merchant view or the sunrise view, you can look at the sulcus angle of the trochlea. On the standard AP lower extremity um, films, you can look for any type of knee valgus or, and you can calculate the Q angle. Now, those are just x-rays. What are some things that we can see on CT scans um, for patients with uh, patellar instability and how, you know, what are some things to look out for? The... Uh... Big one for uh, advanced imaging, whether it is a CT or an MRI, is to look at something called the uh, tibial tubercle tubercle trochlear groove distance or the TTTG distance, which um, what you do is uh, as you're scrolling on the axial images, you find the point of the deepest uh, part of the trochlear groove and uh, scroll distal and you find the midpoint of the uh, tibial tuberosity and you measure the distance between those lines uh, and uh, greater than 15 to 20 millimeters is associated with patellar instability. And basically what that is showing is, or, or what it's describing is that the, uh, if the tibial tubercle is more than two centimeters lateral to the trochlear groove, uh, just thinking about it intuitively, that's gonna put a lot more lateral pull on the patella through every cycle of knee motion. And so the more displaced those are, the more the patella is going to want to be pulled laterally because of that tibial tubercle but the closer they are and the more in line they are, the patella will want to track more within the trochlear groove. Um, if you have a very nice uh, CT or MRI tech, 
they can superimpose images for you so that it's easier to measure. Basically, you tell them, I need slice 10 and slice 20 because those are the two slices that have the best measurements uh, superimposed on each other. Then you can uh, easily measure those. Um, you can also check if you're getting uh, kind of a full length or at least a leg alignment CT scan, you can look at rotational alignment. So you get a cut at the hip, the knee and the ankle, and you can look for uh, femoral antiversion, which uh, as you said before, is associated with a greater Q angle. And then uh, also looking at the axial images, you get, I think, a better representation of trochlear dysplasia because you're not uh, relying on a perfect lateral uh, x-ray. You can have a imperfect uh, axial CT scan and still be able to detect some uh, trochlear dysplasia. Um, but uh, I mean, we're all, I'm still talking about advanced imaging and moving on to an MRI. Uh, obviously, uh, other things you can see on uh, a, a MRI or a CT scan, um, if, the, if they have a history of recurrent dislocations, you can look for osteochondral fragments that are fractured off of the patella. Uh, you can look for MPFL ruptures on the MRI and then any articular cartilage defects, which uh, the classic... Uh, findings are going to be medial patellar facet and lateral femoral condyle uh, kind of bone bruising and articular cartilage uh, defects in those areas. Um, and what I've seen in some of the kind of more straightforward anatomy-based board questions are uh, they'll just show you an axial of the knee at the level of the uh uh, patellofemoral joint, and you'll see a bright signal in the medial aspect of the patella, and you'll see a bright signal uh, just over the kind of lateral uh, distal femur, and it's like, what uh, sort of diagnosis does this patient have? And it's patellar instability, because you're saying that the patella is already dislocated, causing those bone bruises, and has relocated, but we can see um, where the uh, injury is without even uh, evaluating the patient, but, um, what's the, uh, initial management for these patients with patellar instability? Yeah. So these patients that have these patellar instability episodes, or at least the first, you know, somebody that has a first time event, you try to treat those patients non-operatively, you know, so this is going to, you know, you're going to sign them up initially. It's going to be a short period of rest, um, you know, anti-inflammatories, ice elevation, and afterwards you want to get these patients into some re rehabilitation for some physical therapy. So they'll, you know, they'll work at um, uh, VMO strengthening or strengthening at vastus medialis oblique. You can also get them different type of orthoses to, to use that can kind of help stabilize um, the patella. Now, you know, I guess if you speak to different sports surgeons, some say the orthoses don't really work. Some say they do. Some say it's more of a psychological um, uh, thing with the athletes as, as far as they know that, you know, it kind of serves as they know it's there and it slows them down a little bit. So that may be a part of it. But anyway, these are all, uh, you know, our, our initial treatment for these acute patellar instability episodes um, is going to be largely non-operative. Now, on the, on the flip side, uh, what is the treatment of a first-time dislocator uh, 
no, well, actually, we just said this, I just said this. Uh, well, some <laughs> on, on the other side, what I was going to say, if there's a large loose body or osteochondral fragment present, then that would be an indication to, you know, take them back and, and fix them to either fix that fragment or remove the loose body. Um, so just know, know that. So when you're looking at these MRIs, it's like you're talking about sometimes they'll give you that axial T2 weighted image and, and you can see an osteochondral fragment um, that is that is off there. And if you don't know what that looks like, uh, tune into uh, our episode with Dr. Saltzman. We, we kind of went through how to read a knee MRI and we looked at exactly what lines you're looking at and and uh, and we went over pretty much everything, or at least 90% of most common things seen. So if you are, uh, if you're visual, check that on YouTube, you can check that video out. But uh, nonetheless, so what are some, so say, you know, for example, we, this patient, we tried non-operative treatment as a 17 year old soccer player. And she had her first dislocation event when she was 14 and she's gone to therapy a numerous amount of times and really tried hard in therapy and done all of her exercise, but she keeps having these recurrent um, patellar instability events and it, she, it just not has not gotten any better and she is begging to see you even though you're on an oncologist she is begging you to do something for her. uh <laughs> what are some uh, what are some options uh that that is available to this patient um the the treatment for this uh injury is uh a little bit I mean, not difficult to come up with, but you have to really evaluate all the information you have uh, at your disposal because you, uh, it's not uncommon to, I guess, undertreat these patients, which uh, can be kind of detrimental to them because then you're looking at revision surgeries because if you're only fixing half the problem, um, you're setting them up for failure again, or at least a higher risk for failure again. And so uh, the answer is not so simple in terms of like, oh, they have a MPFL rupture. We're just going to reconstruct the MPFL. Well, you have to look at all the information. And, and what I mean by that is we're taking into account the things that we have been talking about. So like the TTTG uh, distance and patellar tilt, um, we're looking at the uh, sulcus, uh, the uh, sulcus angle for the trochlea, and um, we're looking at uh, the anaversion uh, or Q angle for this patient, and and taking into account what sort of issues does she have. And so, uh, the MPFL reconstruction is the correct answer a lot of the time, and what that is is. Um, the MPFL is the primary uh, constraint to lateral translation of the patella through the first 20 to 30 degrees of knee flexion. And then it's focusing more on the dynamic uh, stabilizers like your VMO and other anatomic stabilizers like the uh, just shape of the trochlear groove causing a, a anatomic boundary to lateral subluxation. But uh, MPFL reconstruction, and you want to make sure that that uh, uh, femoral uh, point uh, of uh, fixation is called Schottel's point. And what that is, I mean, it's kind of tough to say over uh, the uh, the air here, but it's, uh, you have to look at the lateral 
uh, view of the knee and looking at Blumensatz line and then where Blumensatz line and the posterior uh, femoral cortex intersect. You're taking that anterosuperior quadrant and right at that uh, area is Shottle's point. Again, if that's confusing to you, a quick search on orthobullets or uh, Google will help kind of further describe that point of of fixation for the MPFL. And then yeah, I've um, seen them. Um, I've seen them just show X-rays and ask you to identify the point. So you should be able to to identify it on an X-ray. They'll be like A, B, C, D, E, and they'll just be dots. So um, just yeah. know how to identify that. Yeah, they'll they'll give you this whole story just like you you told me. You have your a female athlete. She is a recurrent dislocator. She's failed therapy, um, and it's kind of like a second or third level question. So they're already assuming that you know there's an MPFL rupture. You know that they need an MPFL reconstruction, and where's the point of uh, like where you're going to insert the graft on the femur. And like you said, yeah, they're, they're going to have A, B, C, D, or E and whichever letter is on shuttles point, that's, that's going to be the uh, answer to that question. Um, and then, uh, like I said, you don't want to forget about other anatomic uh, deformities or deficiencies that they have. So, I mean, if they have an MPFL tear and a TTTG distance of 25 millimeters, then you may consider a MPFL reconstruction plus a tibial tubercle osteotomy or a Fulkerson osteotomy, which um, moves that tibial tubercle medial uh, several millimeters so that they pull the patella more in line with the uh, anatomic axis uh, or the mechanical axis of the limb. Um, you can also consider a lat lateral retinacular release uh, the downside to that is you do um, uh, cause a disruption in the blood flow to the patella laterally. But it, so if you're also doing a medial reconstruction, you just have to make sure that you're not um, disrupting too much of the blood flow to the patella. And then uh, the CT scan, if they're if they have a flat trochlea, then you can consider a a uh, groove deepening or a trochle trocleoplasty, which I have never seen done. I've seen and people talk about it, but uh, I I don't know how well it would work. <laughs> unfortunately, just because that seems like quite a uh, and anatomic reconstructive nightmare in how you would deepen the trochlear groove, but it's described. A, it can be done. So don't forget about that. And then lastly, with the femoral antiversion, if the antiversion is way out of the normal range, which is around 12 degrees, uh, then you can consider a uh, rotational osteotomy of the femur to help bring that Q angle down. Um, yeah, I think they do a lot of those. Um... Yeah. I think they do those trochleoplasties in a lot of European um, countries. And we have some a lot of European people that listen to this podcast. So maybe one of them can will, will send an email and pitch in. Um, but yeah, I think they do a lot of those. You know, they have those where you can, where it's, it's like, I think it's like something to V. I have to double, I have to look at it. I haven't read up on the trochleoplasties in a while, but they have a lot of different ones. One where you kind of, 
take, I think as you take the subchondral bone and you, you keep the cartilage and then you let that go down or versus you cut it and leave the bone intact. I don't know, I have to double check, but yeah, I think they do a lot of those uh, in, in Europe, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm not too up to date on the uh, yeah, most recent trophyoplasty <laughs> uh, uh, innovations and all of that. But um, I, again, I don't think the OIT or the boards are going to get too in depth with that. It's going to be, they're going to stick more with MPFL reconstruction and tibial tubercle osteotomies, uh, just because those are far and away the most common. Uh, treatment uh things to do for these kids um but let's say uh you have a patient um they have patellar instability um and they and the parents ask all we want is an isolated (laughs) lateral retinacular release what are you gonna tell them we're gonna give them a strong no for that one uh and and i think the reason why is uh, remember dr yankles explained it to us is that the analogy he gave is you know if you're if you're riding with a horse, if you're, I guess if you're in a carriage and you have the two reins or the two ropes, I don't know the actual terminology for it. They go to the horse and uh, they say doing a lot of rut and act releases. Like if you just release one of those and, you know, they're just going to continue to go the other way. There's nothing, you know, nothing kind of holding it in place there. So um, those, uh, most people would opt not to just do a lateral retinacular release now have i been in surgeries where some surgeons just do a lateral retinacular release i have so um but you know those are kind of older older school surgeons and um yeah i, I liked all your points as far as figuring out what to do for these patients that have these recurrent patellar instabilities uh episodes and i think what it comes down to is just figuring out what the underlying etiology is just like you were explaining like if they have those that big TTTG distance of greater than 20 or like 25, then you know you'll likely need to do something to the tibial tubercle and either anterior medialize it um, or, you know, if there's something's wrong with the trochlea, you may need to, you may need to address that, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so continuing on, uh, we're talking about the patella today. Uh, what is patellofemoral pain syndrome and what is its treatment? So PFP, I've had this before, and it is kind of a nagging uh, issue, um, but it's really uh, anterior knee pain that's worth, worse with patellofemoral compressive maneuvers. So a lot of times uh, kids will say, um, yeah, if I'm sitting in class for an hour, uh, my knee just starts to ache and throb or uh, if I'm in the car with my parents for a long time and it's just because they're sitting with their knees bent and then they find if they extend their knees out for a few minutes that pain gets better but then it comes back once they um, bend their knee again and the treatment for this is prolonged rehab and I'm talking like when I see patients with this issue, because I've had it myself and I, I know how long it takes, I prepare them for a six to nine month process of letting this get better. And a lot of times it does, uh, but it's prolonged rehab. It's uh, a lot of stretching. Um, and really what it is, is it's just, it's tight quads. And as you bend your knee, you're putting tension on the quads. And if you have intrinsically tight quadriceps muscles, you're going to be putting a lot of patellofemoral 
uh, stress on that joint and uh, lead to just this achy, throbbing, nagging issue that improves with standing and straightening your leg out. Um, another thing is lateral patellar facet compression syndrome. Uh, and uh, what is that? Yeah, so this is, you know, when patients come in, they complain of knee pain, um, and it's kind of associated with an excessive patellar tilt in a tight retinaculum. Okay. Um, and I feel like it's, it's, you have to like, you know, know this and read a lot on it to kind of know the diagnosis and have a good physical exam skills uh, when, when diagnosing this. But again, this is knee pain that's associated with patients that have an excessive patellar tilt. Sometimes like you were saying earlier, you can do a physical exam and you can actually lift part of the patella up. Uh, and sometimes you're looking at the x-rays, just like you're saying, a sunrise view, and you can see the patella tilted, and they have a tight retinaculum. And and how you do, how you treat this, the treatment for this is going to be mostly, again, conservative. So it's going to be a, a lot of rehabilitation, um, trying to balance those soft tissues. And uh, it is very rarely indicated for an isolated retinaculum release. So uh, at least almost most things that I've done, I've never seen isolated retinacular release be the answer. So, you know, I just take that and, and just know that. Um, now, what is a bipartite patella? Uh, this is a uh, fracture of a patella, according to some ER uh, residents. Um, but <laughs> yes, it, is. It, is not a, it is not a true patella fracture. I'm just ragging on the ER docs a little bit here. I, they're very oh, yeah, uh, helpful too. colleagues and all of that. So if yes, any of them happen to be listening for some reason to a sports <laughs> ortho talk uh we're just no, no. ragging on you but they might uh yeah but a bipartite patella is just a failure of an ossification center to fuse and what the differing factor is between a patella fracture is it's smooth borders they're almost always in that superolateral uh quadrant of the patella um rounded edges um they are almost exclusively found incidentally from a kid who fell on his knee and they get knee x-rays and they find it. Um, they are mostly asymptomatic. Uh, if you have a symptomatic patella, it's a bipartite patella. It's most likely not due to that ossification center that didn't fuse completely it's more like a soft tissue injury overlying that region that gets better with time um, we're not you don't really excise these because there it does serve as a useful attachment point for the quads uh, but um, a lot of it is just conservative management and physical therapy if they still have knee pain and all of that but uh Moving on to kind of quad tendon or patellar tendon ruptures, are they common in younger or uh, older patients? Yeah, so, you know, I think it's just a, something just to know and just to be acute to is that quad tendon ruptures are going to be more common in the older patients greater than 40, and in the younger patients, uh, uh, patellar tendon ruptures are going to be more common. This, you know, this is all kind of just looking into the grand scheme of things as far as extensor mechanism failures. And, you know, when you have disruptions in the quad versus the patella, so just, just a note to know patella is going to be more, patella tendon is going to be more often in younger patients versus quad tendon in, um, in older patients. And, um, and I think we will make a, a, a slight transition to talk about just a few little um, 
sportsy foot topics. You know, we will address the majority of foot and foot and ankle review, but uh, we'll address the little the sportsy side of things uh, here. And uh, so when we're looking at just ankle sprains, which is super common, if you're in any type of orthopedic clinic, somebody will likely get referred to you with an ankle sprain. So what is the most common ligament injured in ankle sprains in the in a commonly uh, associated physical exam finding? Uh, the most common ligament is going to be the ATFL, not the AITFL. The AITFL is part of the uh, syndesmosis, uh, but the uh, ATFL is just one of the uh, lateral ligaments over the uh, uh distal fibula and it's really the talofibular ligament and uh, how you're going to test this uh, is uh, they may have a positive anterior drawer test very similar to I liken it more to the uh, kind of Lachman test for the knee where you're holding the the distal tibia and you're grabbing the calcaneus and you're trying to translate the calcaneus forward and in turn you're moving the talus forward in relation to the distal tibia um, and it's usually a plantar flexion inversion type injury uh, the patients will come in and say yeah my foot was in this position as I tried to cut or uh, uh, stepping off a curb or something like that it was in a plantar flexion inversion position and uh, the good thing about this is that they are uh, not too significant because I think almost every single one of us has had at least one ankle uh, inversion sprain uh, in our lives and we have all survived. So um, true. what are some of the other injured ligaments around the ankle? Yeah, so in addition to the anterior talofibular ligament, um, you also have the CFL which is not the college, uh, the Canadian Football League. This is actually the calcaneofibular <laughs> ligament, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know a common physical uh, exam finding for this would be kind of a, a lateral tilt test. Uh, another thing could be our syndesmosis. So you can have a syndesmosis uh, injury, which is kind of that higher ankle sprain. And when you see these patients, they'll have pain on squeeze and external rotation tests. And squeeze is just pretty much what it sounds like is you squeeze uh, the syndesmosis. So you're squeezing that area, trying to kind of compress it a little bit. And they'll have pain. And then external rotation is where you hold. Just like you talk, we talk about, or, or we will talk about when we get the foot and ankle and talk about ankle fracture, but you kind of hold the um, hold the the tibia or the leg still, and then you and then you externally rotate the foot, and they can have um, uh, pain with that. And uh, one thing to note is that um, in ATFL, it's mostly due to a plantar flexion injury, versus a dorsiflexion injury is mostly going to be the C a CFL injury or the, that calcaneal uh, uh, fibular ligament injury. Um, and so, uh, million dollar question: What is the treatment for an ankle sprain? You know, most commonly we're talking about ATFL, but so what is what is the treatment for uh, an acute ankle sprain? Uh, so this is. Uh, one where you don't want to immobilize, you want the rice treatment, rest, ice, uh, compress, elevate, but you really want to start them in uh, proprioceptive uh, physical therapy uh, within several days of uh, injury because uh, studies have shown that prolonged immobilization have led to uh, worse subjective and objective outcomes for these patients. 
Uh, you're working on peroneal strengthening, so strengthening those everters to help uh, decrease the incidence of an inversion uh, injury. And it's been shown that uh, aggressive physical therapy in the early stages does decrease recurrence of uh, ankle sprains. Um, but uh, that's not to say that there aren't people that have recurrent ankle instability uh, and they have failed physical therapy. What are some treatment options for those? Yeah, so these patients that just have chronic lateral uh, lateral ligament instability or, la or or ankle instability that have had no improvement with you know countless bouts of physical therapy and just have continued you know positive anterior drawer tests, positive lateral tilts. Uh, a couple operative treatment options is going to be one kind of what we call this anatomic ATFL reconstruction, or some people may call it a modified brostrum or brostrum. I think it's brostrum, maybe brostrum. Yeah. Uh, uh, anatomic ATFL reconstruction, uh, and then you you augment that with a with part of the extensor retinaculum. So you'll you know you put an anchor in, or ho however you do your um, your procedure. Everybody does it a little bit differently, but then they'll grab you know use a suture and, and grab a couple of uh, and grab some of the extensor retinaculum to help augment their repair. And that's going to be that modified um, brostrum versus the non-anatomic procedures. And these are going to be procedures, you know, done with kind of the perennial tendons. It's going to be like a Christmas snook or an Evans. And this is where, you know, you, you can harvest different, um, different perennial tendons and make different drill pathways through different bones. And, and, and ideally what it, what it is, is these tendons are, are going to be used to help um, help stabilize that lateral um, the lateral part of the ankle, but so there's pretty much anatomic procedures and the non-anatomic procedures. I don't think you necessarily need to know uh, the ins and outs of each one, but um, those are just I mean that's good. And anything else that you would you think to add regarding that? Uh, no, um, I mean some of this is uh, is really there's a I mean, multiple ways to skin a cat here. And um, there's some that will just do a direct repair. There's some that do some either like tightrope reconstruction or allograft or autograft reconstruction. It's just kind of uh, really identifying. I think what's key for the OITE and the boards is identifying which patients need surgery versus which ones that don't. And the, those that do are going to be the recurrent instability that have failed months of physical therapy and they are uh, in pain when they attempt physical activity and they'll say all of that in the question stem. And your answer choices will be something like, uh, I don't know, like continued physical therapy, uh, like casting, um, like a modified brostrum procedure or uh, like a, those they'll throw in something weird like a distal tibial osteotomy because they're saying oh is this due to a deformity of the leg or something and it's for somebody who doesn't show an obvious deformity you're just going to choose one of the procedures that talks about um repairing these ligaments or reconstructing these ligaments and they, they usually are fairly straightforward yeah cool um and and just moving forward so if we're just kind of generally talking about anchor arthroscopy, what is this? A, what is the most? This is just a, this I have to know. But what is the most common complication following ankle arthroscopy? 
Uh, so the most common one, because the uh, you're usually using an anteromedial and anterolateral compart or and portals for ankle arthroscopy. The anterolateral portal does place the uh, superficial peroneal nerve at risk uh, because of its placement. So uh, you're just you want to do kind of careful blunt dissection down to the joint capsule when you put the trocar in. Um, but uh, another one is if you have to go posterolaterally, um, I think it's the sural nerve uh, is the one that's at most risk there. I've seen that test question, but the uh, by far the uh, most common is that superficial peroneal nerve with the anterolateral portal because you're using an anterolateral portal for every ankle arthroscopy case you do. Um, and then, uh, yeah, if you think that knee and shoulder arthroscopy are no fun, try an ankle arthroscopy case. <laughs> oh, man. Those, those are zero fun. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> move, moving on, we'll, we'll cover some more ankle arthroscopy stuff with like some OCD lesions of the talus and uh, yeah. impingement syndromes and all that in foot and ankle. But um uh, moving on to kind of a, a few more sportsy things that uh, we'll throw in here because there's questions on them are uh, uh, chronic exertional compartment syndrome. Uh, what are the symptoms of that? Yeah, so I'm gonna we actually had a patient that had this. This was this gentleman that um that was a a runner that 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 enjoyed running, but every time he he would run, he would have pain only in the anterior, like only around the anterior part of his leg. And every time he would run, he'd get worse. And then we, when, when he stopped, the pain would get better. Uh, and, and, and that's pretty much how these present. So, you know, what, what the symptoms are going to be pain uh, and swelling with activity that is quickly relieved by rest. And it's going to be common in runners or in cyclists. And, and it's so strange when you talk to them, you'll examine them and you'll, so no pain in the back of the leg. No, no pain in, on the lateral side. No, it's just really right here. And they really just point to that anterior compartment of the leg. Uh, it was just super interesting. But uh, the key things to know that it's worse with activity and it quickly is relieved by rest. And, you know, it, that, diagnosing these can sometimes be a little difficult, you know, because you have uh, many things that it could be, you know, sometimes it may be in a different distribution than you would, I guess, than you would imagine. But how would you diagnose exertional compartment syndrome? So, uh, it's a little bit different than the compartment syndrome we see in the trauma patients than uh, what we talked about in our previous trauma talks um, is that these patients are very functional with their compartment syndrome. Um, so what you're doing is you're getting uh, pressure measurements in the uh, compartments at rest uh, and then after one minute and after five minutes uh, post-exercise. So once they feel the symptoms, then they stop their exercise and you're getting measurements at those time intervals, one and five minutes. Um, you're, what you're really looking for is uh, the resting pre-exercise pressure greater than 15 is diagnostic, immediate post-exercise greater than 30, uh, post-exercise greater than 20 at five minutes. And then some will even say go out to 15 minutes and post-exercise pressure measurements greater than 15 at 15 minutes. So what they're saying is at 15 minutes post-exercise, they should return to their full pre-exercise uh, criteria 
or measurements. And if they're still elevated at that point, they're diagnostic. Um, the uh, big study that really talks about this is uh, by Roscoe and colleagues called Intramuscular Compartment Pressure Measurements in Chronic Exertional Compartment Syndrome, New and Improved Diagnostic Criteria in the American Journal of Sports Medicine in 2015. Um, there are studies out there that that have shown a higher specificity and sensitivity for continuing or continuous monitoring uh, throughout the exercise. So they stay attached to the measurements as they're doing the exercise. You're not just uh, letting them exercise, get symptomatic and then measuring them. Um, it's uh, you can actually watch in real time the pressures go up in their compartments as they're doing the exercise and then come back down once they're done. Um, but uh, say you do have that 35-year-old marathon runner who now has this problem. Um, what uh, uh, we kind of already talked about the most common, or uh, you briefly discussed it in talking with that other patient, but what's the most common compartment and what's a treatment for it? Yeah, so it's going to be that anterior compartment is going to be the most common compartment affected with chronic exertional compartment syndrome. <laughs> it's funny, I remember we had a patient <laughs> one time that had this, it's a different one. And um, and so we planned, you know, like an elective fasciot, you know, just fasciotomy of the anterior compartment. But I guess before coming, you know, showing up to the OR, she like Googled what, you know, like leg fasciotomies were <laughs> and saw the Google images of like these two incision dual fasciotomies with, you know, like muscle hanging out, you know, like the typical things that like the, you know, the trauma fasciotomies. So she thought that's what she was going to have. And she was uh, uh, very uh, uh, concerned. Um, but no, fasciotomy uh, may be needed. And you just watch out for the superficial perineal nerve. Uh, yeah. And um, just a few side notes before I think we finish this part up is uh, a few things that I kind of learned through the board studying process. Um, one is, for some reason, every single board's question I've seen about this, it, they only release the involved compartments, which does place the patient at higher risk for recurrence. Uh, I think the uh, that if you had a patient with this and you were even taking part two of your boards, so you're in your case collections and all of that, uh, I would kind of err more on the two incision uh, technique to release all of the compartments because isolated compartment release does place you, uh, does place the patient at a higher risk for recurrence. But also, uh, almost every single patient who has chronic exertional compartment syndrome on board exams, they will return to your office a couple of years later saying, Hey, I'm having my symptoms again. Uh, what is this most likely due to? And it's always fibrosis. It's post-operative fibrosis causes kind of a reformation of the uh, compartment syndrome for them. So if you do see a patient two years after their fasciotomy with recurrence, the answer is going to be fibrosis. And if uh, you, they have a question that says, the surgeon treating the patient only did an anterior compartment release what is this patient at risk for? And they're at risk for recurrence because they didn't release all four compartments. Ah, 
well solid um solid tips uh about you know this this chronic exertional compartment syndrome which i which i, I feel like they they ask you know you get at least a couple you know maybe maybe you get one or two questions on, on this and hopefully y'all listening to this get it right because of that and um but yeah i think that this was a you know good overview of at least knee and some um some foot and ankle stuff and uh next up will be a little bit of a shoulder, elbow, upper extremity sports. Boom. We are uh, done with lower extremity trauma. We hope you all are ready for some, not trauma, we're done with lower extremity sports. Excuse me. See where my head's at. Uh, but we're done with lower extremity sports, and it is time for us to go ahead and transition to the upper extremity sports topic. So hope you all learned something uh please if this is your first time or if this is your millionth time listening to this tell somebody about it help us spread we are trying to grow and uh and get this out to a little bit more people so without further ado we'll see you next episode